You're listening to A Book at Breakfast with Mark Charlesworth and Chris Newton. The pond was smaller than I remembered. There was a little wooden shed on the far side, and by the path an ancient heavy wooden metal bench. The peeling wooden slats had been painted green a few years ago. I sat on the bench and stared at the reflection of the sky and the water, at the scum of duckweed at the edges and the half-dozen lily pads. Every now and again I tossed a hazelnut into the middle of the pond. The pond that Letty Hempstock had called. It wasn't the sea, was it? She'd be older than I am now, Letty Hempstock. She was only a handful of years older than I was back then, for all the funny talk. She was eleven. I was... what was I? It was after the bad birthday party, I knew that. So I would have been seven. I wondered if we had ever fallen in the water. Had I pushed her into the duck pond, that strange girl who lived in the farm at the very bottom of the lane? I remembered her being in the water. Perhaps she had pushed me in, too. Where did she go? America? No, Australia. That was it. Somewhere a long way away. And it wasn't the sea. It was the ocean. Letty Hempstock's ocean. I remembered that. And remembering that, I remembered everything. That was The Ocean at the End of the Lane by Neil Gaiman. That's the book. What's the breakfast? Well, it's uh, perhaps controversially to some toast. That's not the controversial parts. The controversial part is that the toast is burnt. In Why would we do such a thing? <laughs> we've done such a thing uh, because that is what they eat in the book, The Ocean at the End of the Lane. It's not the only thing they eat. They don't entirely subsist off a diet of burnt toast. But uh, near the start of the book, when they find the opal miner, uh, I won't say in what circumstances they find the opal miner. We'll go into that in more detail, perhaps. But um, his father makes him toast. Uh, and I'm going to read a little excerpt from that. I hip my piece of burnt toast behind my back while my father talked to the policeman. I wish my family would buy normal sliced white bread, the kind that went into toasters like every other family I knew. My father had found a local baker's shop where they made thick loaves of heavy brown bread, and he insisted on buying them. He said they tasted better, which was, to my mind, nonsense. Proper bread was white and pre-sliced and tasted like almost nothing. That was the point. I took a bite of my toast. It was burnt and cold. At home, my father ate all the most burnt pieces of toast. Yum, he'd say, and charcoal, good for you, and burnt toast, my favourite. And he'd eat it all up. When I was much older, he confessed to me that he'd never liked burnt toast. He'd only eaten it to prevent it from going to waste. And for a fraction of the moment, my entire childhood felt like a lie. In a strange way, that one funny little observation kind of sums up the whole book, doesn't yes, it? it does, things yeah. aren't quite the way you remembered them yeah. like when you were little. <laughs> and, and also that uh, grown-ups can't be trusted to tell the truth mm. about things. <laughs> and you mentioned the opal miner. And yes, it is a spoiler, I suppose, of sorts to say what happens to him. But I think even if you've not read this book, if you've ever heard Neil Gaiman talk about the ocean at the end of the lane, he tells the story of the opal miner mm. because it's something that really happened, isn't it? And that idea that um, this guy 
had committed suicide in his dad's old car, mm. but he hadn't known about it as a child. And it actually puts me in mind of the quote at the beginning of this book. Uh, I remember my own childhood vividly. I knew terrible things, but I knew I mustn't let adults know I knew them. It would scare them. Mm. But uh, <laughs> anyway, we're, we're jumping ahead of ourselves slightly. How did you discover the ocean at the end of the lane? Did I lend it you? Um, well, I'm going to go back a little bit. Mm, uh, yeah. I was telling my partner about this um, a couple of weeks ago. I discovered Neil Gaiman um, when I was at university. Um, of course, yeah. Stardust. Well, even before that, um, I was going through a little bit of a, a rocky patch and I was feeling quite down. And these two girls from my English class uh, very kindly took me to the pub to have a little kind of uh, intervention and, and check in on me and look Aww. after me, which was very sweet. Um, sadly, I've completely lost touch with them now. Um, but uh, if they do in some future universe find this, I'd just like to say thank you to both of you. And um, I was talking about feeling a little bit lost and disenfranchised at university. Uh, and they said, have you heard of Neil Gaiman? Um, and they told me uh, about his book, um, Anansi Boys, it actually was, oh, yeah. um, and said I should read it. So I got Anansi Boys out from the library uh, because of those two kind girls. Uh, and that was my introduction to Neil Gaiman. Some years, well, at least a year before Stardust came out and several years before we became more familiar with Neil Gaiman through Doctor Who. Mm. But the odd thing was... I didn't really like Anansi Boys, no, and it wasn't really until reading Good Omens, yeah. which, of course, is co-authored by Terry Pratchett, that I really clicked with Neil Gaiman. <laughs> and and to this day, there are still... I, I, I find Neil Gaiman quite hit and miss, and I know that's something we disagree on, but I love some stuff he's done. Some stuff I just struggle to get into. Yeah. Thankfully, I think The Ocean at the End of the Lane is probably the best thing he's done. I think it's wonderful. I would wonderful. completely agree with that, yeah. Now, that... We, we've touched on Doctor Who there. And maybe <laughs> I'll leave that to you, because yeah. um, you probably don't know. We don't mention it very much, but we, we quite like Doctor Who. Um, and I imagine that's probably going to come into your Neil Gaiman origin story. So <laughs> you, go I've on, do you want to talk about that? i <laughs> that A Book at Breakfast is actually a Doctor Who podcast where we just pretend we're talking about various non-Doctor Who-related books every month, but it's a ruse. And we're on episode seven. They've seen through it Books at breakfast. Books at breakfast. Sorry, just... Doctor, look out! Reversing the polarity on the microphone there. No, no, we said we wouldn't do this. Come on, let's get back to the books. We've got to pretend that we're cultured and educated. Oh, um, Sorry, you're yeah, talking I, about Neil I Gaiman, didn't... who's an author, who has nothing whatsoever to do with Doctor Who. Um, I didn't read a Neil Gaiman book until I was 30. I don't know why I was so late to the party. Um, but um, Ocean at the End of the Lane was actually the first one that I read. Oh, I didn't know uh, that. And you're, it is the best in some ways. It's sort of been diminishing returns with Neil Gaiman. But I don't. I, that sounds like an insult. It's actually a compliment because he gets. I think he gets better with every book. But I can see why 
you wouldn't necessarily like all of them because he's so varied. Like Anansi mm. Boys is completely different to the Ocean at the End of the Lane, and an Ocean at the End of the Lane is completely different to Neverwhere. You mm. know, um, so I can see how it's a, a you know a lottery of sorts. But I was vaguely aware that there was a film called Mirror Mask, and people loved it. Mm. Um, I didn't know who'd written it, and I also knew that there was a book called Good Omens by Terry Pratchett, but I either didn't know it was co-authored or didn't know who it was co-authored with, and I was. I was scared to read Good Omens because it was my friend's favourite book. Mm. And you know when there's that weight of expectation, you think, oh God, what if I don't like it enough? <laughs> I was too afraid to read it. Um, so yeah, I had no idea who Neil Gaiman was until series... I was about to say series two. It was actually series six, six. of Doctor Who. Um, or series 30-something, depending on where you start <laughs> counting from. It's all gone wibbly-wobbly. Um, Matt Smith's second series of Doctor Who, I'm sure if you're listening to this podcast, you will know that Neil Gaiman wrote the episode The Doctor's Wife, which, for my money, is one of the best episodes of new Doctor Who, mm. um, if not Doctor Who, generally. Um, but it was very strange, I was because I'm so sad that I pretty much have kept all my doctor who magazines don't be sad chris <laughs> you might have to take me to the pub and cheer me up by giving me a book <laughs> oh he's not giving me a book he's giving me doctor who magazine issue 434 from well it's, it says first of june 2011 but it came out earlier than that it was the teaser um for for matt smith's second series so it would have been what march may i can't remember but there's a picture of um Saran Jones, isn't it? The actress mm. who plays. From I think, I, yeah, I just think of her as. Um, I've forgotten the character's name. Steve McDonald. Karen McDonald. From Corrie. And it was all very odd. Like, Karen McDonald <laughs> in Doctor Who, but uh, she plays plays it so well. And she's a proper actor now. She's in everything. I know, I know. Dr. Foster. Mm. Yeah. Um, yeah, she's great. Still, um, the doors of Coronation Street will always be open, <laughs> Saran. But, um, and Doctor Who. Mm. Well, true. But um, well, technically, she's been in every episode. <laughs> oh yeah, even Ever. going back to like before she was born, we're spoiling the plot of the Doctor's <laughs> wife, which I think is fair now because it was eleven years ago. Um, I just pointed at a picture of the eleventh Doctor then, like that had some kind of universal significance. Serendipity. Mm. It was really funny because I was, I was, so I found this old issue of Doctor Who magazine, which was kind of teasing the series to come, and uh, they talk about the doctor's wife in a spoiler free way which is kind of completely impossible <laughs> and reading it now having seen the episode many times it was kind of hilarious how do you talk about it without giving and but they seem to give a lot of attention to this episode and there was a that as well as the episode preview in it there was a massive interview with neil gaiman and photos of him on set and a, and a strange part of me the sort of obsessive fan in me was a bit like well why is he getting such special treatment? <laughs> Why is everybody so excited that this guy who looks like uh, Alan Burton. Rickman? Oh, oh yeah, oh, yeah, um, is 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 doing an episode of Doctor Who when there were you know so many other great writers that season. Um, but then, of course, when I saw it, I understood why people were so excited because it was just brilliant it had me in tears it was mm. absolutely fantastic and i think we can talk about the plot now so it's been 11 years um spill forward if you don't want to know <laughs> but um basically the it's always been hinted at in doctor who that the tardis the doctor's time machine <laughs> how do you do, um is sentient or has some form of consciousness 
And he regularly talks to it. Yeah. They regularly talk to it. Old girl. Mm. (laughs) Pats the console. And so in this episode, the the soul of the the TARDIS is sucked out so that it can be destroyed by this malevolent entity. But then the soul has to go somewhere. So it ends up in a person Mm. called Idris or... Mm formerly called Idris. So now that we have like the, the TARDIS in, in human form getting to interact with the Doctor. And it was just so... It was such a massive love letter to Doctor Who. Mm. And, you know, it was so full of little winks. And and yeah, you referred the Doctor referred to the Doctor as they, because obviously since Jodie Whittaker, we now know that the Doctor can be male or female. Mm. And that goes back to the Doctor's wife. There mm. was, I think... I can't remember... Oh, it was the Corsair the um the 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 time lord that that well not really but the the doctor thinks he's had a message from a a fellow time lord called Mm. the corsair and there's just a flippant little throwaway line about uh his or her regenerations and i remember at the time when they cast jodie whittaker somebody on twitter saying (laughs) to neil gaiman like oh you 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 know (laughs) you did this and he and he, he said it was a lovely kind of humble response he said i opened the door i'm i'm glad that they chose to go through it it was really sweet (laughs) um but yeah so from 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 then on uh i was i was a neil gaiman fan even though i'd only seen that one episode of doctor who but that was enough and then funnily enough in our in our doctor who episode yes because they're not old episodes about doctor (laughs) who some of them are about other books they haven't even mentioned doctor who to do oh no hang on we have spent more time talking about doctor who than neil gaiman (laughs) (laughs) but i tell you what's really sweet um in that uh in that issue of doctor who magazine i was talking about um I can't remember the the context, but somebody was, he was explaining, somebody had said to Stephen Moffat, why have you asked Neil Gaiman to write Doctor Who? And Stephen Moffat responded by saying, I've read his stuff. Mm. And and saying that it was it was obvious that he was formed by Doctor Who. Mm. And there's a brilliant, we may have, yeah, we may have mentioned this before on the podcast. There's a brilliant uh, Neil Gaiman nonfiction collection of essays called uh, The View from the Cheap Seats. And there's a wonderful um, little, essay he's written on doctor who in that i think it was a foreword to one of the as either new adventures or a bbc books Mm. doctor who story i can't quite remember but um it was 2003 you know before doctor who came back and he was reminiscing about his childhood memories of it and you can tell and i think funnily enough in in the ocean at the end of the lane more than any of his books there's a massive doctor who influence i think when Mm. we were rereading this in preparation for the episode i messaged you and said i think this is the most doctor who thing that isn't doctor who <laughs> in terms of it's it's a fairy tale of course it's a fairy tale and yet it's also oddly science fiction in a strange sort of mm. way there is a kind of pseudo science to it and the and the character of old mrs hempstock on the one hand she is like the archetypal wise old woman and yet she's also a physicist mm. <laughs> and well, we'll well you know we'll come to the hempstocks shortly but um yeah, I think it's it's obvious what a huge influence the world of Doctor Who was and the concepts of Doctor Who were on a on a young Neil Gaiman. And it's brilliant, to, you know, to read his stuff knowing that. And it's worth mentioning that I think in the so the next series, series seven, would it have been Matt Smith's third series, Neil Gaiman also wrote A Nightmare in Silver, which I love. And a lot of people, including Neil Gaiman, don't like it. I think Neil he, Gaiman doesn't like it. No, I think he said what he wrote was very different to what materialized on screen. Mm. That's Stephen Moffat. <laughs> I don't that, think that was in Neil Gaiman's voice. That's how he speaks. 
Ocean at the end of the lane's my best novel. That's how he talks. Yeah, I've heard the audiobooks. <laughs> oh, yes. It's a hard listen, let me tell you. <laughs> Actually, his audiobooks are wonderful. Oh, it's beautiful. Absolutely wonderful. Um, I fell in love with this book all over again, listening to the audiobook in preparation for oh, this. I'm glad. I'm but glad. I suppose we should save that for the adaptations. Yeah. Um, but going back to Nightmare in Silver, just, just briefly, what I thought was interesting is that Again, if you're listening to this as a Neil Gaiman fan, I'm sure you've seen the Amazon Good Omen series with David Tennant and Michael Sheen. Did you know David Tennant was in a sci-fi program? No, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to do it. Um, and he said that his experience with Nightmare in Silver um, kind of influenced the role he took on Good Omens because he was saying he wanted to have complete creative control so that there wouldn't be a repeat Ooh. scenario of, you know, what was on the page not mm. quite making it onto screen. And uh, again, long-term listeners will know that um, we're big fans, not just Doctor Who, but the Doctor Who target novelizations. Mm. And it is my hope, my enduring hope, that uh, now that the target range is back and the modern writers are novelizing their TV scripts, that Neil Gaiman will at some point novelize oh, The Doctor's Wife that. and A Nightmare in Silver. And in a strange way, as much as... I, I have a... This is so sad. I have a sort of Target Books wish list. Mm. And You've got a literal wish list. It's on, there's a poster <laughs> on the wall to the left of us <laughs> showing still, every yeah, Target book cover. I, I know, and there are four more coming out this month. I know, you're going to have to get posters. I, I need a new poster. Yeah. <laughs> um, but... Uh, yeah, number one on my target wish list is is The Doctor's Wife by Neil Gaiman. Number two is The Girl in the Fireplace, novelised by Audrey Niffenegger. Oh, yes. Imagine that. Which I did suggest oh. to her on Instagram. Do you remember? Did she reply? Yeah, she said, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, well, that's a yes. That's confirmation. You heard it here first, folks. Um, but that would be kind of wonderful, wouldn't it? Um, but I would, I would love to read a novelization of a nightmare in silver possibly more yeah, than the doctor because the doctor's wife is so vision. yeah to see how it differed and but i mean people criticized it i i loved it you know cybermen uh, in a fun fair in space <laughs> with warwick davies you know matt smith jenna coleman what's not to like loved it I don't remember it kind of making a massive impression on me either way but i think if i went back and revisited it now <laughs> i probably would love it and there was a certain era of uh, that Swift's Doctor Who. Oh, we're talking about Doctor Who again. Oh, my God, how did this happen? There was a well, certain era that I wasn't fully appreciative of, I think. And I think if I went back and watched any of those episodes in think, isolation yeah. now, I would probably love them. It's I... always like that when a Doctor leaves. You have mm. your favourite episodes, but then once they're gone and you miss them, you go back and even the episodes you weren't so wild on, you just love seeing that Doctor in action yeah. again. But I think it's fair to be talking about Matt Smith because... Neil Gaiman, for me, is very synonymous with yes. Matt Smith's era because yeah. not only did he write those two episodes, he wrote a brilliant short story called Nothing O'Clock. Oh, yes, um, I remember that. Which was, in fact, it's on the shelf just mm. behind you. It's a 50th anniversary collection, 11 Doctors, 11 Stories. Maybe we should cover that at some point and then we could talk about Gaiman. More. More, yes. <laughs> and Doctor Who, yes. more. Um, if, if you've not had enough. But anyway, I've got a, a massive tangent. But You're I was about 18 minutes in and we've barely mentioned the book. In our, in our Target book episode, episode three, when we talked about uh, Rose by Russell T. Davies, um, we also briefly mentioned a short story collection called Adventures in Lockdown. And we mentioned that Neil Gaiman had a story in that. And it that story is about the Corsair, the Time mm. Lord from The Doctor's Wife. So anyway, that is, that is a very long and roundabout good 
gushing way for me to say, I discovered Neil Gaiman through Doctor Who. <laughs> we could probably edit out the last 20 minutes, couldn't we? And just have, I discovered Neil Gaiman through Doctor <laughs> Who. It's important to get it right, though. It's important to get it right. But um, yeah, my friend Zowie, whose favourite book is Good Omens, just gave me this one day and said, you'll love this. Good Omens was that. No, no, it was at the end of the lane. We're actually talking about the book we're supposed to be talking about. Oh, we've got onto it now. Who'd believe it? Um, And I spent the last 90 minutes listening to Close to the Edge by Yes, and I'd kind of zoned out a little bit. (laughs) I thought you were listening to us in your headphones, but you're not. You're just (laughs) nodding. Um, And it was one of those, you know, you talk about books you can't put down, but sometimes, literally, you just sit and read a book from cover to cover and that was me with the ocean at the end of the lane I now think... interestingly that rarely happens to me because what we were talking about in the last episode you like about to save how much things, I, save I know, them, yeah. yeah i tend to race through books um but you know i will occasionally go to work or go to sleep or something <laughs> um but barring cups of tea i think i was i was in the house on my own for the evening and i thought well i'll, I'll give it a go and I literally just sat and, and read the whole thing. Yeah, was this was... in the era when you had a tease made as well, so you could feasibly <laughs> have had tea on tap next to you without having to put the book down? I missed the tease made. No, I did mm. I did get up and make tea occasionally. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so yeah, so we've talked about how you discovered Neil Gaiman, but so did I lend you this book after I'd read it? Yeah, you lent it me, but... Um... My prevailing memory about you telling me about this was um, we go to a place uh, near the Lake District called Arnside, which we've probably mentioned before. We've recorded some of the podcasts oh, from there. We have, actually. We Arnside. recorded our mystery September episodes. Ah, yes. right. Okay. Episodes plural. We'll We're leave you hanging of, on that one. Out of sequence. Yeah. We've talked at length yeah. about things that you haven't heard yet. <laughs> <laughs> um but we, we go to a place near the Lake District called Arnside, and I remember it was around one of your birthdays, mm. and um, we went to the Fairy Steps, which is in a little oh, village course. on yeah. uh, the outskirts of Arnside called Beaverham, and we were walking through the woods, and we walked past an old empty house in the woods, and I remember you telling me about the ocean at the end of the lane, and you'd read it, and then you'd kind of dived headfirst into the universe of Neil Gaiman's writing, mm. And you were telling me all about the different things you've written, uh, but you said start with the ocean at the end of the lane um, because you had, so it makes sense. Um, and that's my kind of prevailing memory of it. And the landscape we were in couldn't help but colour the way I saw the book because it was a rural landscape with mm. scant houses and farms around it. And there was uh, there isn't really a creepy old house in the book, but there was in these woods. And it seemed to kind of fit with the idea of uh, going into fairy that um, this book slightly touches on. Yes, yeah. Not in a Tolkien way, but there is a reference to a fairy ring. Well, the, just for anyone who doesn't know the area, that the fairy steps um, in Beetham near Arnside and Silverdale is a sort of, how would you describe them? It's kind of like a tiny ravine Yeah, where there are sort with... of rocks, sort of, na- sorry, steps naturally kind of embedded in, in the rock. or Are they natural? I always assumed it was. Oh. But, I mean, of course, the story goes that they were they were paved by fairies. Ah, but the, okay. But the, yes. the, the, the folklore attached to them is that if you can walk all the way up the steps without touching the sides, the fairies of the woods will, will grant you a wish. And it's a, it's a really cool story to hear when you're little and you're going yeah. up there and trying to... And then 
you get some of that in this book with the uh, the the narrator the the young boy there's a what they call a fairy ring in the garden mm. and then later on when he's when he's threatened and he's in danger letty hempstock tells him to hide in the fairy ring and it's it's all very uh, devil rides out isn't it you know <laughs> do not leave this circle even though things will pretend to be your loved ones and your friends and try mm. to lure you out but no do not leave the circle but but it's that idea of that possibility and imagination and um which is, uh, you know, don't leave, not for anything. Why not? Because something bad could happen to you. I don't think I could get you back to the farmhouse safely, and I can't fix this on my own. But you're safe in the ring. Whatever you see, whatever you hear, don't leave it. Just stay where you are, and you'll be fine. It's not a real fairy ring, I told her. <laughs> it's just our games. It's a green circle of grass. It is what it is, she said. Nothing that wants to hurt you can cross it. Now stay inside. I just love that, that idea of, well, it's not a real fairy ring. Well, no, but if you believe that it is, <laughs> that's that's the magic that can protect you. And it's almost like an innocence, like almost the innocence of childhood can, can protect you. And I suppose now that we're talking about the book proper, I would I would say that's kind of what this book is about. It's about childhood and it's about memory and the, the bits of ourselves that we lose as as we age. It's so interesting as a concept as well because Neil Gaiman has said that it's his most biographical book mm. and he writes so accurately about that experience of being a child. There's a certain phraseology that he uses every now and again and you just, it triggers something off and you thought, yes, I remember that when I was seven years old. Yes. I remember thinking like that and it's so perceptive and wise but so accurate and astute the way he manages to put himself in the mindset of that little boy that he was again and i don't know if i'd be able to do that as well i think it's a real skill to be able to remember the way you perceive and process mm. the world as a child when everything is big and distorted like a caricature of itself and what's interesting about this book is in terms of it being vaguely biographical you wonder how much of this is real, but how much of it was actually games that he played when he was younger? Like like did he meet a ring, maybe? Yeah. Did he meet a slightly older girl that lived in a nearby house, and did they play games together about being, you know, finding kittens growing out of the ground and the the housekeeper that came to stay being evil because he didn't like her, and that's yeah. you would turn her into a monster as a child. And uh, about hiding in the fairy ring and about the pond being an ocean. Is that real? I'd love to know all that mm. from Gaiman. Um, because, you know, when you're a child and you believe those things, they are real. And then oh, if you grow up and yeah. they sort of become embedded into memory, who's it to say what, what really is. happened yeah. and what didn't happen? Because, that's, there's a, you know, there's a, a whole thing about memory in there and how no two people will ever remember the same incident the same way. And neither one of them is is right or wrong you know it's it's so subjective mm. um but yeah and the and the character of ursula monkson that's, that's Oof, interesting because it's killing i think um just to go back to another neil gaiman novel Coraline, which it was very similar in a in a strange way yeah it has that that concept of the other mother mm. and i think i may be misremembering this but i i'm fairly sure i once read an interview with neil gaiman when he said that his daughter got to a certain age where she would want to tell him a bedtime story or you know uh -huh. she would want rather than being read to she wanted to make up stories and he said that he noticed that most of her stories revolved around her mother being replaced by some kind of oh. evil version of the mother 
and and I, th- and I think that's where the bell dam in um caroline came from but i thought isn't that interesting it taps into some kind of inherent innate childhood fear of our caretakers being replaced mm. uh, and that idea of not not being safe and and you know that goes right back to the classic wicked stepmother mm. and um ursula monkton doesn't literally re- replace the the protagonist mother in like like the other mother in Coraline but on the one hand she kind of well supplants her mm. as the the matriarch in the house and the horrific scene where he sees his dad uh, having sex with oh, the babysitter yes. but it's described in this really awful way because the the narrator the child doesn't know what mm. he's seeing they're up against the fireplace and he said, oh, her skirt was pulled up and my dad was stood behind her. And it's and he's really afraid because he knows that they're doing something they shouldn't be doing, but he doesn't understand what it is. But obviously as the reader, you know, and in that respect, it reminded me a bit of Room. You know, so many yes. awful things are shown through the yeah. child's perspective. And it's kind of even scarier because they don't quite they know, know what's happening. They a line, but they don't know what the line is. But instinctively, they know something's wrong about it. It's interesting. I don't think you ever see the mother and Ursula Monkton in the same scene. The mother introduces her. That's right. And then she's just there. And then the mother's doing some sort of charitable thing, isn't she? When Ursula Monkton's there. And then she doesn't seem to come back. And it's it is like Ursula completely supplants the mother. But the mother is kind of the only character in the family unit that doesn't seem corrupted by Mm, Ursula Monkton mm. because the father falls under some sort of spell or perhaps he's just uh, a bit of a toe rag and he ends up uh, yeah, you know, it's having funny. this I, affair with her, and and the sister I, who's young is very easily has her affections, but yeah, and it feels very isolating. It feels very lonely. That especially the scenes where um, what's the boy's name now? Um, well, that's the thing that the main character ne- is never named. That's interesting because I it's always I. That it's until from his now. perspective. I yes. did this, I did that, and of course, I, I like to think that the the boy's name is Neil, Neil. <laughs> <laughs> because it is so, like you say, so autobiographical in, in some senses, and I I don't think it's always uh or often very useful or important to talk about the influences or origins of a novel or a film or what you know i think you should just kind of appreciate the art for the art's sake but with this book i think it is slightly different i think having a little bit of context of how it came to be kind of enhances your enjoyment of it or maybe not but it certainly explains why it's so effective um so briefly for anyone who doesn't know um neil gaiman is married to the musician Amanda Palmer and uh, when he was writing this book or rather she was off doing an album and she said she wanted to go and do it on her own I think even in another country so he felt kind of separated from her and she'd been asking him about his childhood Uh, so he thought well I know I'll write a short story for her Hmm. about my childhood because it's a way of answering her questions but also to kind of you know because he was missing her it was a positive thing for him to create something Mm. that was for her and I remember it might even there's a great interview at the end of this book with well, the version of it I've got anyway the 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 one with the Specsavers National Book Awards <laughs> logo on the cover with the with the boy possibly remember, Neil floating in the if your eyesight is playing up and you do need a pair of new spectacles Specsavers is the only optician that's worth your money. How much do we get for that? It's just sort of sense. You said insert it in casually, and I thought that was pretty well done. Yeah. Um. So. If we just pick up now and carry on talking back about the book, people won't even notice this okay, uh, yeah. this awkward pause. <laughs> I'll just readjust my glasses, the spec savers. There we go. And now I can see the text of the book, which you're going to read. I remember, um, I think it's, yeah, there's a great interview at the at the back of this book. 
and he says that when he went to america oh no i think he lives in america but when he went to meet his wife's family he said it was very strange because he literally went to the house she grew up in and this was my bedroom and this is where these are the places i went to and he was saying that being from england and the part of england that he's from all the areas he grew up have gone Mm. and you know we see that so much even sort of around where we live you know so much of uh of you know so much green land being paved over trees being pulled down I was even and thinking that on the train here you can the, see yeah, all the new builds encroaching shrinking. on the farmland i know it's, it used it's to really be a solid strip of green either side of the train and the green is kind of being eaten up i don't think tolkien would be happy no and i um yeah so there was that idea that he couldn't go back to his old house and in this book, he's kind of recreated a, a fictionalized mm. version of it, which again is so bound up with the not just the theme of the book, but the whole aura of it of going back and how you can't quite go back. And uh, again, the sort of semi autobiographical element I remember him saying about this book that where he lived, I think the house described in this book is is very similar to the house he actually grew up in. And he said there was a farm down the end of the lane and and i think his parents or whatever told him that the the farm was listed in the doomsday book Mm. he said oh my god you know the farm at the end of the lane is over a thousand years old and so he liked to imagine well what if the people who live there were also (laughs) a thousand years old and so he he'd always imagined the hempstocks as this family who lived in you know the farm down the end of the lane and now he finally gets to tell their story but i think because you know these fantastical concepts and these weird concepts are rooted in something that is so tangible you know he's described the world he grew up in it just feels so completely real and even if you didn't have those kind of experiences growing up yourself you can you can tap into it because it's so vivid Mm. i think and that's why you never notice the protagonist doesn't have a name because you are (laughs) that child and you have those fears and those anxieties and there's a brilliant bit um it's probably the funniest bit in the novel. Uh, a funny bit in a novel that is fairly light on comedy in, in, <laughs> so, in some respects. Because it is dark. It is. Um, There's you nothing know, quite as dark as childhood terror. No, it's... and that's the thing. This is very much not a children's book. No. Uh, and yet the protagonist is a child. And it is written in an almost... It's not like a kid's book. But it, it has something of that flavour about it. You know... It, you quoted the toast bit earlier about and he would eat it all up you know Mm. almost like a fairy tale but it's kind of twisted and it it ties into that part of you that remembers your childhood but can perceive a darkness that was on the peripheries that you weren't quite aware of but at the same time you get the kind of um irrational childhood Mm. fears man there's a fantastic um You'll never, if you're anything like me, you'll never be able to read anything with the word anatomy in it the same again <laughs> after having read The Ocean at the End of the Lane. He's talking about going to uh, the Chamber of Horrors and uh, seeing um, endless dioramas of unremarkable, glum-looking men and women who had murdered people, <laughs> usually lodgers and members of their own families, and who were then murdered in their turn by hanging by the electric chair in gas chambers. Most of them were depicted with their victims in awkward social situations, seated around a dinner table, perhaps, as their poisoned family members expired. 
The plaques that explained who they were also told me that the majority of them had murdered their families and sold the bodies to anatomy. <laughs> it was then that the word anatomy garnered its own edge of horror for me. I did not know what anatomy was. I only knew that anatomy made people kill their children. <laughs> and it's, it's very funny, but at the same time, incredibly sinister. Yeah. Like, you can remember finding things so disturbing as a child because you didn't understand them, not because they were inherently disturbing. Oh, those sort of people murdering their families is disturbing. <laughs> I remember this seems like it's going to go for a real tangent. Uh, oh, in terms... tangent. <laughs> In terms of those sorts of things that you discover for the first time that seem otherworldly and terrifying, I had seen an episode of Tomorrow People oh, wow. where somebody was in the back of a taxi and then the taxi driver wound up a, a glass partition and the back of the taxi started filling up with this uh, vapour, like a gas, and it started choking and poisoning It was poisoning a cliffhanger, them. wasn't it? Yes, it I was. I remember that yeah. episode. Yeah. And then I remember being at a holiday park uh, with my mum and playing at the uh, awful Caravan Park disco, there was like a sort of um, classic rock band that were presumably doing the covers in their day. But <laughs> to me, they looked vaguely terrifying. They all dressed in leather and they're all bald and they all have big beards. <laughs> and they're the sort of guys, you know, that we probably knock around with now and they're probably lovely. But <laughs> there was something a bit sort of threatening about them. They, you know, they look like what I might imagine Hell's Angels to be. <laughs> and when they started playing a few songs in, all this dry ice started uh, coming from the machines at the start of the stage, their atmosphere, and the room started filling up with this vapour. And I was absolutely terrified <laughs> that these cheap stage tricks were a gas and the band were evil. <laughs> and they were henchmen for some sort of villainous organisation that had come to poison the entire caravan park. That's fantastic. <laughs> it wasn't I... fantastic, it was terrifying. <laughs> I'm imagining them as, as the bikers from Good Omens, actually, you know, the, the bikers yes, of the apocalypse. Yes, yeah, that's what I pictured, actually. But yeah, just in terms of that thing about something that seems quite innocent or mundane, the way you perceive it as a child, I remember what that's like, and that's one of the things I love about this book, the way he writes about it so well. And he writes yeah. about the mundane in such a matter-of-fact way, mm. even when he's talking about something that's almost... It, it could be otherworldly, the thing he's describing. Yes. The way a child will talk about a monster as a fact, because they've seen yeah. branches casting strange shadows on a window, and to them it's monsters. He he does that so well, and he just inhabits that mental space of the kids so well. And there's that idea of, you know, do we really grow up and... Uh, that sort of sense of identity and sense of self. And there's a bit sort of early on where he's um, looking at himself in the mirror. He says, I wondered, as I wondered so often when I was at that age, who I was and what exactly was looking at the face in the mirror. If the face I was looking at wasn't me, and I knew it wasn't because I would still be me, whatever happened to my face, then what was me and what was watching? And there's a kind of theme... Again, Letty says something later on about uh, how there are no adults in the world and how they're all just children inside. <laughs> and, that you know, he says, she says people don't always look like people don't really look like what they look mm. like. And the idea that inside every adult is a frightened and confused child. And again, it might be worth mentioning. We haven't really talked about the plot much because I'm kind of assuming that people have come to this knowing the book. But in case you don't and go away and read it, obviously, but. It begins with our unnamed narrator. We'll call him Mr. N. Gaiman. <laughs> no, that's too obvious. Um, Neil, Neil, G? Neil G. Yeah. Um, 
going to a funeral and it's funny again like not noticing that the protagonist doesn't have a name um or well, he does have a name he just isn't named <laughs> dr mysterio um uh i always assumed that he was at his father's funeral and it was probably about my third read when i realized i don't think it ever says whose funeral he's at no. i don't even know if it ever explicitly states he's at a funeral I mean, it clearly is a funeral because it's a somber occasion and people want to tell him mm. how sorry they are. And I think even like its author, um, I think the protagonist lives in America or at least a, a long way away. I don't know if it says that, just that yeah, he I'm not sure. is not from the area. Or he's come back to the area yeah. he used to live in, yeah. Um, and there is, and there's that idea, it's on one of the first pages about when you're in a suit at a funeral as an adult and you feel like you're in fancy dress as a grown-up mm. and having to be incredibly incredibly somber and serious and but at the same time it's it's a, a really vulnerable situation to mm. be in and and a vulnerable scenario and and then he needs a break from the funeral so he decides to have a nostalgic drive back to his old house if i don't think it's a conscious thing is it he just goes for a drive and then realizes he's driving back to where he used to live, even though that the farmland has all been demolished to make way for new builds. And yet he realizes that the lane keeps on going. <laughs> and even that, back to what you were saying earlier, it is in some strange way like he's straying into fairy. Yeah. He's crossed some kind of border that the, the lane itself is somehow magical and can sort of transport him to. Is it the past or is it some sort of fundamental state like the the ocean at the end of the lane and the farmhouse at the end of the lane always exist and always have existed and yet you can't always get to them and it's on the one hand you can say yes it's because the, the houses have been knocked down and they've built this estate or whatever but is it that sort of peter pan thing is it because he's grown up now and he can't get back there i find the whole idea of the hempstock's farm really enchanting and the fact that when he's been he has these amazing revelations and it comes at all these defining moments of his life because towards the end of the book when he's talking to the the old lady who we assume to be old mrs hempstock she says uh, something about you you come here all the time or I you come here often so much and he's been when he's you had small forget. children and he's yeah. feeling but every time he goes when he leaves his brain rewrites the history mm. of what's just happened and maybe he carries the revelations of what he's learned in his heart but he can't access the sort of whys and the wheres of how he's got there so it's inaccessible both on the way there and he never realises he's going there until he ends up there. Exactly, And it's yeah. unobtainable when he's left there because he can't access the place and he can't access the memories Exa either. Yes, yeah. And it's only if he spends enough time there that he joins the dots between those visits. So I find the kind of whole... The idea that it is completely in a different realm and it's beyond even the confines mm. of this memory is just so enchanting. I love the idea. And it, it, it does feel like that. I think particularly when you're a kid, when you go to special places... And you only visit them every now and again. Mm. They do feel like another realm. And I would return to Arnside for yeah, us, of course, yeah. which still feels like it has magic to yeah. us. And when we visit there, I feel like we're visiting a different realm. But only and, if we're together. It's time, it's, yeah, and it's more so if we're together. Timeless. At least. And what's really interesting is that um, you mentioned, you know, old Mrs. Hempstock, or is it uh, Ginny Hempstock? Mm. Or, but we'll come to that. <laughs> come to the Hempstocks later. But. Um, uh, she says, "Oh, you, you've come here several times before, and the the instant you said you came here when your first child was born, mm. and you were full of uncertainty. Now, I'm not a parent myself, but obviously, I would imagine 
that's a huge rite of passage. That's mm. a huge sort of coming of age thing. And I imagine it's a, I was talking to somebody who is a parent the other, the other day about the sort of the, the dichotomy of probably feeling like you're not capable or experienced enough to be a parent. And yet the only experience you can have that qualifies you to do it is doing it mm. <laughs> and it's and some things you just have to go have to go through and then then also <laughs> this is a strange reference but we can we can tie it in make it vaguely relevant because it was a Stephen Moffat line from his <laughs> uh, his an early comedy show he wrote called Coupling and it ends with the sort of the, the main characters they're about to have a, a baby together and Susan has told her partner that she's pregnant and she explains it by saying it's somebody else's turn to be a child oh and there's something about not exactly losing a part of yourself but properly becoming an adult mm. but then also fortunately i've i've not you know both my parents are still alive i haven't been through that mm. um experience either which again will be a, a massive kind of i don't want to use the word milestone because that feels like it trivializes it but it's something that more or less everybody goes through at some point they will mm. they will lose their parent or parent figures or guardians and and on the one hand and again i'm kind of i'm clutching in the dark here because i'm i've my parents are alive and i don't have children myself but i can only imagine that when you're faced with those things that becoming a parent or losing a parent like you must feel so vulnerable mm. and childish yourself and yet by the very nature of those things, you're stepping much, much further away from your own childhood and becoming, yes. you know, you're filling a role that was once that you once viewed as somebody else's, you know. I've heard people say that they feel like, um, you know, the steps on the ladder are taken away from yes. them above them. It's always somebody else's turn to die. And then you realize that you're next in the queue. Exactly. Yeah. And at the same time, as you're incredibly vulnerable, you're also having to do these incredibly adult things like arrange funerals mm, mm. and organize like a tourney of your parents estates and distribute what was theirs evenly and pay off their debtors and all that kind of thing at a time when you're perhaps least emotionally equipped and most vulnerable to do that exactly yeah and it I... kind of makes sense in the context of this but why he reflects on an earlier part yes. of his life where he does look at his parents being supplanted or taken away if as it hints at he is at a funeral for one of those parents and there's a wonderful uh, line from Letty. Um, there's a wonderful line from Letty. That just felt like it had to be sang. I'm going to tell you something important. Grown-ups don't look like grown-ups on the inside either. Outside, they're big and thoughtless, and they always know what they're doing. Inside, they look just like they always have, like they did when they were your age. The truth is, there aren't any grown-ups, not one in the whole wide world. She thought for a moment and then smiled, except for Granny, of course. <laughs> so on that note, we should probably talk about the Hempstocks and in particular old Mrs. Hempstock. But before we do, I think we should make a cup of tea. I think you're right. And long-time listeners will know that we have a tradition where possible to, to make tea in accordance uh, with the author of the month's rules for making tea. Rules is a bit strict, but... So when we did our 1984 episode, we luckily had a copy of George Orwell's essay, A Nice Cup of Tea. And then when we did The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, 
We also had a copy of The Salmon of Doubt, which contained Douglas Adams' essay on tea. And I'm delighted to bring back the tea section. We didn't, you know, Marcus Zusak, what are you playing at? <laughs> um, but Neil Gaiman, fortunately, in 2005, uh, wrote a blog about how to make the perfect cup of tea. So let's give it a go. Right, we're back. <laughs> so, yes... On uh, neilgaiman.com, uh, a blog post from Monday, the 6th of June, 2005. Wow. Christopher Eccleston era. We measure time in terms of doctors. Yeah. There'll be from people. Doctor there, Who. There could be people listening to this who weren't even born then. Mm. That's terrifying. And yet it still stands. Uh, the last T post. More people than I could count using the fingers of a small scout troop wrote in to say, right. How do you make tea, then? This is the biggest, most important thing to know. For a black tea, you pour boiling water on tea leaves. So straight away, we find an accordance between Douglas Adams, mm. George Orwell, and Neil Gaiman. But then, as as you all know, if you listen to our Hitchhiker's episode, one of Neil Gaiman's first books was a book about Douglas Adams and the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, mm. and they definitely spent some time together. So he learned from the best. <laughs> I don't think he actually learned how to make tea from Douglas Adams. I think it's just an English thing. And you can tell, I think, a lot of the traffic to this blog was, was probably um, fans in the U.S., uh, and it seems to be tailored for them. But nevertheless, he goes on to explain that boil ing, as uh, as Douglas would uh, would describe it, that's ninety percent of the art of making a decent cup of tea. Hottish, not boiling water, tends to make a weird tea that's bitter and weak at the same time, and is no fun to drink. Boiling water is why God invented the kettle. It's the final ten percent of the cup of tea. That you'll get people calling each other heretics through adding the milk, not cream, first. Or whether to use tea bags or loose tea, and whether burning in effigy or a nice box of chocolates was the correct reward for whoever decided adding bergamot oil to tea was a good thing, or all the other tea things that people like to argue about. And to all that I'd just say degustibus, which means... Um, <laughs> what did I say? I can't remember. There's no accounting for taste. That's basically. it. There's no accounting for taste. That's it. <laughs> and having said that, when I first moved to the US, I discovered that the local water supply, when boiled and added to tea, had some kind of weird chalky scum on the top. And I installed a reverse osmosis water purifier by the kettle so that it didn't. So what he's saying is he uh, reversed the polarity <laughs> of the water flow. I mean... He says when he moved to the US, but there are plenty of areas in, in Britain, I find, that you get kind of horrible, chalky water. Yeah, London um, is, I don't know if it's just hotels, but I would say singularly every hotel I've ever stayed in in London, I always get a chalky cup of tea. I don't know if you've ever made a cup of tea in a London hotel room, but that is true hell. You've, <laughs> you've, you've been into the abyss if you've tried to make a cup of tea with the, with the tap water in a hotel room in London. <laughs> Still drank it, though. Still we've, drank it. We've suffered manfully on. <laughs> Where are we up to? Well, this, this next one shocked me, I must say. The very best cups of tea I ever had were in Australia and in Patagonia. Actually, in a Welsh tea room in Patagonia, in a town called Gaiman. They were good enough to be memorable, 
And they were both loose-leafed tea in teapots. Again, we come back to the loose-leaf recurring theme. And that tea we made in the Orwell episode was really good. It was fantastic. We did it to the letter, you know, rinsed out the pot with boiling... Well, he said to heat the pot, but on the stove but we, we couldn't do that so we just rinsed it with boiling water but um yeah it was funny when i mentioned that um marcus zusak had let us down by not providing us with tea making instructions i was about to say oh well maybe it's because he's australian mm. whereas the other the other three are all english but no here we go the best cup of tea neil gaiman ever had was in australia the mind boggles but there you go mm. And I suppose Patagonia doesn't quite count if it was in a Welsh tea room, presumably made by uh, Welsh owners. I got the lady who made me the tea in Australia to teach me how to do it. I was so impressed. She showed me how to warm the teapot with warm water before the tea went in. So there you go. Mm. We weren't complete Philistines doing it that way. Uh, To make sure the water was at a rolling boil. I love that phrase, a rolling boil. After a few minutes, she turned the pot around three times clockwise and three times counterclockwise, which she told me was like stirring, but didn't risk bruising the tea and making it bitter. And she was definitely a milk first into the cup sort of person. I mean, I was on the cusp of saying, well, maybe I'll try this, you know, uh, Mm. swirling rather than stirring. But can you trust anybody who puts the milk in first? I remember I used to work with somebody, um, a dearly beloved old colleague who's sadly not with us anymore. And I was very thorough uh, if I made a brew round for the office. And he made a joke about me stirring the tea 20 times clockwise. I know. 20 times counterclockwise. <laughs> I remember you doing that. And I do still do it yeah. on occasion, kind of as a tribute to him, because uh, I do miss him. He was a, a lovely soul. Back in the old days, before you could get good non-dairy milk to go in tea and coffee, um, nobody could make a cup of coffee with soya milk mm. except you <laughs> and you did it you said by stirring it 20 times yes. clockwise 20 times i'm gonna say widdershins <laughs> um and yet when when we did a controlled experiment where we both did exactly the same thing with the same you know the, the same coffee the, the same milk the same kettle and everything and mine curdled and yours didn't so i think you're just a wizard I uh, I have aligned my chakras specifically <laughs> to harness the powers of the earth to make tea. And also, I bought you a cursed elephant from Thailand that prevents you <laughs> ever get- making a cup of coffee correctly with soy milk. That's what a Coronation you- <laughs> Street reference, a really specific Coronation Street reference. And it has nothing to do with Saran Sh- Jones. But no, I liked the- it's or all Neil Gaiman or it's Doctor Who. Well, I don't know. Russell C. Davies cut his teeth on Coronation Street. Oh, it's all linked, man. Point. It's all holistic. Yes. Oh, anyway. Stars, man. I've seen the signs. Despite being a milk first into the cup sort of person, we'll, we'll continue. It was, apart from turning the pot instead of stirring, just like the BBC Scientific Guide to a Perfect Cup. Wow. I didn't know that there was a BBC, not just a guide, a scientific guide. <laughs> I'm thinking of John Pertwee uh, getting the brigadier to <laughs> pass him a silicon, silicon rod to stir his tea now. <laughs> In fact, I won't click this link because I'll be disappointed if it's anything less than the, the, the unit laboratory. Um, but for anyone who wants to know, we'll put a link up to this uh, BBC perfect guide in our show notes and to uh, Neil Gaiman's blog. And funnily enough, at the end, he also includes a link to George Orwell's A Nice Cup of Tea article, mm. which... Hopefully you've you've read by now, if not heard us reciting it. But I'm easily pleased, says Gaiman. I tend to think of tea as being like sushi. There's great sushi, 
There's perfectly good sushi. And then there's rubbery, chewy, evil, fishy strips on cold rice pudding-ish lumps that humans should not have to eat. In the same way, there's great tea, and there's good tea, which comes in a variety of different kinds, including serious strong enough to stand the teaspoon straight up in builder's tea, made using tea bags and best served in a stained mug with a chipped handle. I mean, that's my, that's my perfect cup of tea, mm, if I'm honest. Absolutely. And then there's what you get in a cup after trying to make a cup of tea using some rapidly cooling hot water delivered to you with a paper-wrapped tea bag and a small tub of non-dairy creamer that really human beings shouldn't have to drink. That's the uh, Starbucks in Europe experience. Yeah, I'm getting PTSD to the American experience Mm. I described in our Hitchhikers episode, but uh, let's not revisit that. And he goes on to say, if you're in the US and want to get some decent British or Irish loose leaf tea or tea bags without either going to the UK or paying a fortune, there are some places online I've been using. And he gives a website, www.britishtea.com. Now, this is from 2005. I have no idea if that website is still active. Hopefully it links to Specsavers website now, um, who we've discussed today and produce an excellent first-rate range of spectacles if you were in the market for a new pair of spectacles. But if you just want tea, Specsavers will not be able to help you. And your spectacles will steam up when you mm. when you take a swig. I hate that. <laughs> Sometimes I sacrifice being able to see just so I can have a nice cup of tea. In that case, you'd have to wear contact lenses. Did you know that 37% of glasses wearers in the UK are not aware of their, the powerful benefits of contact lenses compared to wearing glasses? But at Specsavers, they produce a fine range of contact lenses, scientifically measured to suit your retina. I've got some bad news. I've just double-checked the email, and it was actually Boots the Opticians <laughs> we were supposed to be plugging. <laughs> I didn't oh, read no. it properly. <laughs> Should oh, have gone God. to Specsavers. <laughs> anyway, back to the book. In what is becoming a long-standing tradition um, on a book at breakfast, we like to highlight the the grandmother figures in the books that we read as the best characters. Um, In uh, Adrian Mole, we have Grandma May Mole. Uh, We had um, Mickey's grandmother in Russell T. Davies' Rose novelization. And now we have the ultimate grandmother. We get old Mrs. Hempstock and... uh, the the Hempstock Farm, which I think you've already touched upon, as being this sort of like a, a sort of fortress of homeliness and security amidst all the you know the the childhood terror and it's uncertainty and turmoil, and then you get um, I felt safe. It was as if the essence of grandmotherliness had been condensed into that one place, that one time. I was not at all afraid of Ursula Monkton, whatever she was. Not then. Not there. It's such a sanctuary. And when he first goes into the Hempstock's house, it follows on from um, an almost unbearable... I think it's only two chapters, but it seems to go on for such a long time when this sinister housekeeper figure, Ursula Monkton, is taken on uh, ostensibly to look after the children so the mother can go out to work. Mm. Um, but the boy, Neil, potentially, knows there's something wrong with her. And everything about her seems kind of eerie and uncanny. Like, before she arrives, he finds a, a hole in his foot and there's a worm oh, so in the bizarre, hole. Yeah. And then he pulls the worm out and tries to flush it down the plug hole in the bath. And then Ursula Monkton appears. 
and there's this implication that she was the worm mm, but now she's yeah. in human form and the boy right away can see that she's wrong and she should yeah. not be there and so they get off on the wrong foot no pun intended <laughs> from the off as we've said, she seduces the father sexually and she kind of seduces the sister's attentions materially mm. uh, and with compliments. And so the boy, because the mother seems to be absent and there's this awful period where Letty Hempstock seems to be absent mm. as well. For a few chapters, he's just completely on his own. He can't leave and, the house. Can yeah. he? he knows he has to get to the farm where he'll be safe. And again, you know, you have that fortress of, I was about to say fortress of solitude. That's <laughs> Superman. But you know what I mean? That that safe haven. Mm. And to know that it's only down the lane. But he, sh there's the terrifying scene where he's kind of shimmying down the yeah. wall, isn't oh, there? Oh, yes. But she's there. She, she won't starts, let him. She appears in the sky. And yeah, she looks terrifying. Like a, a load of ragged things floating well, that, in the breeze. But yeah. at the same time, she looks like a woman. So that's the thing. That, and I think why Ursula works so well as a villain and we talked in our 1984 episode, we talked about Room 101 and fear and how sometimes, you know, some authors are better at others that are kind of instilling that sense of fear in, in the reader. And because fear is such a subjective thing. And on the one hand, because you have this brilliantly realized child protagonist and you're so in invested in, in his well-being and, and he's so sort of emotionally real, um, and and you know you you really you really feel for him that you know his his mother's gone and and nobody his sister doesn't believe him that Ursula's evil and so there's that aspect but also in terms of when you see what she truly is well or do you you know but that when you realize that or not so much realize but when it's confirmed that she isn't really human she's described in such a bizarre way mm. as to be like wholly otherworldly mm. like you say she's sort of flapping rabs flapping rags doesn't he describe her as like a kite at one point yeah. like a kite with a human face torn in it and it's just it's almost unimaginable and dare i say sort of lovecraftian in that mm. kind of incomprehensible horror but yeah and you can you just know immediately that she is from some other place some something that that we cannot even begin to understand and that's what makes her so threatening and yet other people don't see it which makes it even worse because the boy is completely alone in these suspicions yeah and i think that what what makes it more horrifying that everyone else would look at him and say well, he's just a child he's just telling tales mm. and yet in his head this is completely real and in terms of the grain of truth in this, I do wonder if there was a housekeeper that Neil Gaiman was scared of as a child and was perhaps a bit severe and intimidated him. Maybe, yeah. And he rationalised it into that. And then did he see some uh, some material caught in a tree flapping in it and he was running away from home? <laughs> and did he see this in kind of like in that way that a child will turn the shadows of trees into a monster? Maybe. Did that turn yeah, into it? Yeah. And have those two things become conflated in his head? Um. But I, I love that because as a child, those things that seem like pure imaginings to anyone else, they do become real. That becomes your reality. And yeah. she is so terrifying and such a violation into the home space. Somebody there that doesn't want to care for you. They want to influence your dad to chuck you into a bath of freezing cold water. And the scenes the where he's scene. describing yeah. where he feels like he's going to die, that terror. And I remember that feeling as a kid when you're going mm. through something that... It's probably, in the scheme of things, quite unpleasant, but wouldn't kill you, and it's reasonably innocuous. 
but the actual terror that, oh my God, this is the worst thing I've ever had to experience and I feel like I'm going to die. Mm. I think we all remember those those feelings of being a kid and for something like that to be happening in your own home and sanctioned by the adults that are supposed to be protecting you is so awful. So when he does eventually escape to the Hempstocks, that feeling of sanctuary and that nothing can get in here and the yucky food that he normally has to eat in other people's houses <laughs> yeah. that he can't stomach is suddenly really delicious and he enjoys it. And all the three women around him seem to offer him different levels of motherliness or sisterliness and, and grandmotherliness, yeah. importantly. And this, you know, it, it, slightly earlier before Ursula, but after you know the incident with the opal miner in the car and after the, 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 the horrendous burnt toast that I think he hasn't eaten it, has he? He's hidden it behind his back and... Um, but then he gets taken to the farm and we have breakfast here early, she said. Milking starts at first light. But there's porridge in the saucepan and jam to put in it. She gave me a china bowl filled with warm porridge from the stovetop with a lump of homemade blackberry jam, my favourite, in the middle of the porridge. And then she poured cream on it. I swished it around with my spoon before I ate it, swirling it into a purple mess and was as happy as I have ever been about anything. It tasted perfect. Mm. And it's just the complete antithesis of the, mmm, charcoal, good for you. <laughs> and then there's even a bit later on when, um, uh, is it Ginny uh, Hempstock mm. that the mother berates um, old Mrs. Hempstock for giving him honey? So it's bad for his teeth. And she says, I'll have, I'll have a word with the wrigglers in his mouth. <laughs> and there's this really bizarre line when, when the, the mother says, you can't, you can't influence bacteria <laughs> and uh and you know, she says well you know they'll they'll spread like you know i can't remember the exact quote but she said well you know they'll get up to all sorts if they're not told and it's weird it, going back to that thing i was saying about it being kind of really reminiscent of doctor who in what um john hurt referred to as like pseudoscience now i know you know not that i'm saying that it's all made up i think that there is like some actual research gone into this novel about I don't know string theory or physics mm. in some so in some respects, but that idea that on the one hand she is the archetypal wise woman in in you know the cottage on the outskirts of the village, but there's this implication that she has some sort of grand understanding mm. of everything on some sort of cosmic level that we're not aware of, and she's not she doesn't find Ursula Monkton bizarre because she knows what she is, and the very beginning of the book, you get uh, they're talking about. Uh, the fact that they've come here from the old country and uh, her mother said letty didn't remember it properly and it was a long time ago and anyway the old country had sunk old mrs hempstock letty's grandmother said they were both wrong and that the place that had sunk wasn't the really old country she said she could remember the really old country she said the really old country had blown up and she's talking, of course, about the Big Bang yeah. and, and back to that idea of, you know, the, 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 this family and this farm at the end of the lane that have been there since time immemorial. And yeah, they predate the Big Bang. And I love that, that about those women in that farmhouse as a kind of universal constant, mm -hmm. as almost like a, an actual force of nature. And I suppose it's worth mentioning at this point that the concept of the triple goddess which is sort of like a, you know, sort of pagan um, archetypal deity of like the three in one of the, the maiden mother and crone as like the three s stages of the, the female life cycle, but also sort of like 
the phases of the moon and that mm. idea of you know Hecate and that that kind of thing and you get implications throughout the book that perhaps the hempstocks are actually one person mm. uh, and again especially we especially in the contemporary scenes yes, when he's speaking to so the good. lady in the cottage and you can't tell whether is it Letty? And yeah. She's grown up. Is it Ginny? And she's become old, or is it the grandmother? Exactly. And there's a bit where, um, and and again, that sort of adulthood versus childhood and your your perception. He sees. Uh, so is it Ginny or Jenny? It's G- Ginny Hempstock, isn't I think it? The it's mother. Ginny. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Ginny. He sees her as there's a scene. You know, he's sort of crying into her bosom mm. as a small boy, and he sees her as kind of grown up and motherly, and then. When he sees him much later on at the end, he realizes that she's only in her late thirties, and he doesn't see her as yeah. the same person anymore. <laughs> um, but of course, how can she be in her late thirties <laughs> if she hasn't aged? And he said, "Oh, I thought you were somebody else." And uh, you know, there are brilliant bits of him kind of of him not quite knowing who he's talking to. And there's um, a fantastic scene where it says, uh, "Old Mrs. Hempstock was gone too. I thought that she was standing beside me." But only Ginny stood there next to me, staring down silently into the dark mirror of the little pond. Oh, when she's carrying yeah, Letty. Yeah, says, right. She said, no, it, um, yeah, yes, yeah, you're right. Yeah. Right, I'll take you home. Because, of course, this, there's the, well, well back to Ursula. Um, you know, despite how terrifying she is, is she actually evil? Mm. Because right back uh, to the beginning of the novel, where you have the opal miner, the reason he commits suicide in the family car is that he's lost all his money mm. gambling and doesn't know what to do. And and it's almost like that disturbance is what somehow summons this, this being into our yeah. world. And she wants to fulfil his wants. He wanted money. So she starts by giving everyone money in really unusual want. ways. Like the boy wakes up with a coin like in his vomiting throat money. And yeah. choking on it. And the sister thinks that somebody's chucking coins yes, at them. Yes, I'll stop throwing coins at me, yeah. <laughs> and even that's kind of child... Well, not childish, but there's that idea of, like, you know, films like Home Alone or, or Big, you know, Tom Hanks, and that idea of, like, as a child, imagine having the power of an adult. Mm. And you think, oh, I'd do whatever I wanted. I'd eat all this and I'd do that, you know. And But it's not responsible. You can't mm. always just have what you want. And yeah. often, if you get what you want, you realize that it isn't what you thought it would be and you need what you want and what you need are different things and then you have this entity that gives people what it thinks they need like money and how you know it doesn't solve anything and that and there's the sort of troubling question i remember when i was first read it we talked about the father earlier and i thought no he's he's a good guy but ursula's this evil sort of demonic creature that seduced him but then you think well actually no Mm. um and and if it's this being that gives people what they want, you know, maybe he, he wants this sexy young I said I don't know how, how old she actually is, but you know, he'll see her a certain way, this mm. sexy what is she a childminder? Is that her official or is she I a think housekeeper? So, yeah. yeah. I guess she's like a, an old pair where yeah. they, they move in with them and they look after the children so the parents can have some time yeah. working or being celebrities but, um, or yeah. I, I don't say the parents in this book are celebrities <laughs> but i guess that's who has au pairs now i guess but um but there's this idea that you know she's ursula is not fundamentally evil she just shouldn't be in this world mm. something has gone wrong and 
and then you get sort of Letty kind of you know who on the one hand it just seems so incredibly wise mm. and powerful and you know the bit where the boy is trying to get out of the house and you're just desperate of him to get to Letty because you know she'll sort everything out but she's quite cocky as yeah. well <laughs> and she ends up making a mistake that almost costs him his life mm. and she's kind of sacrificed for it yeah. almost but when and again this is all very 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 Doctor Who the idea that they summon these creatures called the hunger birds to come and take care of Ursula. And it's, and there's a very, very, very Doctor Who moment where, um, is it Letty or someone, one of the Hemp's doctors saying, I'm going to give you a, a choice. You know, you leave or we summon these things. Mm. So, it's, you know, she could have gone and survived, but the, the, these creatures who actually remind me of, are they called the Reapers in Doctor Who, yes, the, who come to sort of cleanse, yeah, yeah, time. The, these varmints. creatures who come, yeah, the varmints who come to come to sort of tidy everything up. Except it, they go too far and mm. they start consuming everything, and then old Mrs. Hempstock has to come and sort of uh, banish them. But even that scene's really interesting because they're not sure if old Mrs. Hempstock is there or not. Yes. And there's a wonderful scene where this being, this witch, this this sorceress appears and commands them to leave and you have this description of it and he hears the voice and he is he thinks it's old mrs hempstock he says the voice sounded like letty's gran like old mrs hempstock like her i knew yet so unlike if old mrs hempstock had been an empress she might have talked like that her voice more stilted and formal yet more musical than the old lady i knew and then it describes this person when he when he sees her when she appears having you know banished the varmints she shone silver. Her hair was still long, still white, but now she stood as straight as a teenager. My eyes had become used to the darkness, and I could not look at her face to see if it was the face I was familiar with. It was too bright. Magnesium flare bright, fireworks night bright, midday sun reflecting off a silver coin bright. I looked at her as long as I could bear to look, and then I turned my head, screwing my eyes shut tightly, unable to see anything but the pulsating afterimage. <laughs> she's so bad. The voice that was like old Mrs. Hempstock said, Shall I bind you in the heart of a dark star to feel your pain in a place where every fragment of a moment lasts a thousand years? Shall I invoke the compacts of creation and have you all removed from the list of created things so there will never have been any hunger birds and anything that wishes to traipse from world to world can do so with impunity? It's incredible. But then I wonder who that figure is because you mm. think that old mrs hempstock has arrived almost in this kind of you know gandalf the white kind of capacity but then i wonder if that being that we're seeing there is the true being mm. that resides at the end of the lane that that eternal and immortal and fundamental force that all three of them make up a, a fragment yeah, of representations of. yeah exactly yeah. yeah and then because later on uh you know Oh, sorry, I've already read that bit about old Mrs. Hemstock was gone. But then suddenly he's not really sure which of them is mm. there. And there's the brilliant scene. So after, you know, the, the the hunger birds have been banished, but it looks like Letty might be dead or in some sort of coma. And uh, Ginny Hemstock drives him home in their Land Rover. And it's kind of bizarre to yes. think because, because they're so earthy. And even he says that I had not imagined any of the Hempstocks driving. I said, I didn't know you own a car. And then Mrs. Hempstock just says lots of things you didn't know. <laughs> but then there's a brilliant description of the Land Rover about how it's basically so sort of caked in mud. Um, I can't find the exact quote now, but, you know, it, it the classic old sort of farmyard car. Um, but then you start to realize, you start to wonder, 
is it really a car or is it something that she's kind of just like manifest caused to manifest through bits of clay and and mud and dirt and manure because they're so sort of you know bound to the land Mm. you know that that Mm. that part of, of the lane um but back to that sort of um you know the the three in one triple goddess element it's wonderful right at the end when we're back the epilogue i think when we're back with the um narrator as an adult and he's remembered everything but already it's starting to fade and he's not sure if he's talking to who he's talking to because it can't be Ginny Hempstock because she's still only 38 but there's an old woman there too think oh that must be Ginny grown up but then suddenly there's just one you know we made our way back to the house the old woman and I the moon does shine as bright as day I said like in the song it's good to have a full moon she agreed I said it's funny for a moment I thought there were two of you isn't that odd it's just me said the old woman it's only ever just me (laughs) i thought that's brilliant it was only ever just this being whatever it was but even within within the narrator kind of you get like his childhood self and his adult self and they seem very separate and yet this book kind of draws the line between them which is like the lane you know it's sort of Mm. inaccessible except under certain circumstances and then right at the end this is the very end it's obviously the last page of the book. I looked back at the farmhouse in my rearview mirror, and a trick of the light made it seem as if two moons hung in the sky above it, like a pair of eyes watching over me from above, one moon perfectly full and round, the other, its twin, on the other side of the sky, a half moon. And I love that. It's kind of like it's old Mrs. Hempstock and Ginny Hempstock, mm. but there, but it's only two because at the moment, like, Letty is still... She's still in the ocean. In She's the ocean. Becoming Letty. Whatever that means, yeah. yeah. And there's there's a bit and the idea that he realizes then as an adult, again, you know, because he's he's been back many times, we're told, and forgotten, but he realizes what's happened and that Letty has sort of sacrificed herself for him. Mm. And there's a bit where he's he's saying, you know, I can't remember the exact wording, but he says, Was I successful? Did I do well? And she says you don't do well at being a person you just are you know it's like the fairy ring it is what it is um but it's a horrible feeling as well that thing that somebody sacrificed himself for you so you have to live a life that's worth living to justify that exactly and the feeling of pressure and expectation mm. he must subconsciously feel on himself as an adult to live a worthy life yeah but then i wondered if letty in that sense is almost a metaphor for childhood Mm. like because you have to grow you know and the idea that have i used my life well because Mm. that child that little boy that i was ceased to be so i could become the adult me and and was it passes out of his life exactly he has this experience that kind of brings him out of innocence exactly yeah so the childhood dies and yeah. Letty vanishes at the same time. That's exactly. Interesting. Yeah. I never thought about that. But then there's this idea that it's. I love those she's, penny drop moments. She's not exactly dead. She's sleeping yes. in the same way that his childhood memories are sleeping. Mm. They're there in the ocean. And so, again, yeah, the book is called The Ocean at the End of the Lane, but we haven't really talked about the ocean. <laughs> <laughs> and it's kind of hard to talk about the ocean yeah. because the ocean. I mean, I can only think about it in 
terms of the big concept that has landed in my head, which is that the ocean is a form of consciousness. Yeah, that, that was what I took from it. Yeah. And it is all the universe, life, the universe and everything, to yeah. tip our hat to Douglas Adams, personified as, I don't know, it's... It's not either really a duck pond or an ocean. It's not either of those things. It's somehow bigger than all that. But mm. the metaphor that there could be a pond at the end of the street, and or the lane, sorry, mm-hmm. and at the beginning, uh, he talks about it like a pond. Because he's he an says, adult. Yeah. No, it's the, it's the ocean. Yeah. And he almost kind of like discusses the, the yeah, yeah. idea in that childish way. And she's adamant that it's an ocean. Mm. And later on, it becomes the ocean. Yeah. And I was picturing myself stood at the end of the duck pond um, and all the waves swelling up. And then it seems like it somehow fills your peripheral vision and you can't see the side of it anymore. And I was picturing it literally becoming an ocean. But at the same time, there's something about diving into it and it becoming infinite. And all of a sudden, you know, it could stretch under the ground and it could be occupying just under the skin of the entire yeah. earth. You could travel anywhere in it. And then somehow it becomes something bigger than that. It It becomes a representation for everything that's in the mind and everything that's in the world and the makeup of the mind and um i i believe um if you want to call it a, a spiritual belief this is as close to any kind of spiritual belief i hold but i believe that uh, we are all part of a great consciousness and that human beings and animals and trees and grass and air and clouds and water are all made of the same basic matter uh, and that we're all sharing the same experience and we're all just different designs or different manifestations yeah, of, of, of that consciousness. everything yeah and when you when you die you you don't pass out of existence your physical body the vessel might but the energy doesn't die the physical form might crumble mm. and rot into the soil but energy doesn't die. That, that's that been is, shown is, scientifically. Energy yeah. passes from one state to another, but the amount of energy in the world is finite. It's constant, yeah. Um, and so when I read this about the ocean, it's the probably the closest I've read in book form to any kind of representation of my own spiritual beliefs about the great consciousness. Mm. Um, and occasionally... I suppose we have those moments where we feel like we have a brush with that consciousness and you suddenly think, wow, I had this great understanding. I had this epiphany. Yes, like waking up from and a dream and it suddenly yes, just dissipates. Just there. It's, it's just, just on the fringes of your consciousness yeah. and it's ebbing away. And yeah. when he comes out of the ocean for a moment, he says something about, I yeah. felt like I knew everything. And then, and then, suddenly, then he talks, it's describing But it's it almost fading. like, yeah, and it's that all knowing in a strange way similar to how Ursula Monkton is kind of incomprehensibly mm. terrifying in her nature because she exists outside of our universe. And when you're in the ocean, which, as you say, seems to be consciousness mm. or energy or whatever you want to call it, you're back to your comp- you go back to your component part, sort of like, you know, like a, a drop of water from mm. a vast ocean. Mm. Um, and you can comprehend those things then. You can know them. But when you're back in your mortal body it, with your human brain, they're just concepts you can't actually comprehend anymore. And if you could glimpse that comprehension, you couldn't put it into words. Mm. You couldn't understand it. And uh, you were talking about sort of 
death and like the body dying but what you are is constant is that what it means that letty's asleep she's not dead because she's she's in the ocean has she gone back to the universe you know what and it's just it's yeah it's, it's written so in such a surreal way mm. in such an obscure way but in it, it oddly relatable at the same time that idea that the second thing i thought was that i knew everything Letty Hempstock's ocean flowed inside me, and it filled the entire universe, from egg to rose. I knew that. I knew what egg was, where the universe began, to the sound of uncreated voices singing in the void, and I knew where rose was, the peculiar crinkling of space on space, into the dimensions that fold like origami and blossom like strange orchids and which would mark the last good time before the eventual end of everything and then the next Big Bang, which would be, I knew, nothing of its kind. <laughs> I knew that old Mrs. Hempstock would be there for that one, as she had been for the last. It goes on in a similar vein. It's and so you, poetic. It it's really beautifully is. written. Yeah, and uh, everything whispered inside me. Everything spoke to everything, and I knew it all. Could there be candle flames burning under the water? There could. I knew that when I was in the ocean. And I even knew how. I understood it just as I understood dark matter, the material of the universe that makes up everything that must be there but we cannot find. I found myself thinking of an ocean running beneath the whole universe like dark seawater that laps beneath the wooden boards of an old pier. An ocean that stretches from forever to forever and is still small enough to fit inside a bucket if you have old Mrs. Hempstock to help you. <laughs> And if you ask nicely, I love that. And it's again, wonderful, isn't it? You know, without wanting to go back to, you know, the classic, how can you fit an ocean inside a bucket? Well, it's because it's bigger on the inside. It's the TARDIS. And it's it's imagination and it's childhood. And mm. it's that idea that, of course, when you're Letty Hempstock, a pond can be an ocean. Yeah. But in that kind of huge, you know, macrocosmic versus microcosmic way, you know, a, a drop of seawater contains the ocean within mm. it you know on a i don't know what i'm talking about i'm not a physicist but or a biologist well, but on a cellular level all the component parts are there aren't they i think partly one of the beauties of this book is it gives authority to not knowing what you're talking about yes. because we talked about those experiences where you have glimpses where you feel like you see everything in a meta level and you understand everything and then it flees from the peripheries of your mm. subconscious and you can't access that information anymore and a lot of this book is about saying adults don't know everything. Yes. And adults are still children inside. And that's quite freeing. I think. Yeah. There's something quite liberating about reading There is. That. And, you know, it's, and we're back to the fairy ring. Mm. I, I don't know what it is. I don't know how it works. But if you believe that this is a fairy ring, it will protect you from a very real threat. Mm. And, you know, it's like reading, isn't it? Like books, as we've said before in our Target episode, books are bigger on the inside. <laughs> How can you have an entire universe, an, an entire family, an entire childhood in a, in a slim novella that's only 200 pages mm. long? But it's that doorway to possibility. And, it, you know, sounds a bit lofty, but like reading a book is like going into that ocean. Oh, absolutely. You know, it's vast, it's infinite, and it's full of so many ideas that you might not even completely comprehend but it can impart some sort of sense of knowing onto you anyway 
we better wrap it up, hadn't we? Yeah, this has been a, a long one, but I feel well, it hasn't felt like a long no, one. No, again, it's such it. a it's, short book yeah. as well. There's so much to discuss. <laughs> and some of it wasn't even Doctor Who related. Listen but... to the audio book of this. I think the audio book <laughs> was only three hours, and we've talked for half that. No, it's about it's... eight hours, you know. Oh, is it? Uh, yeah, oh, yeah. God, it I didn't did, feel like I did it. Flew by it. Right yeah. Clip. yeah. Um, so, yeah, adaptations. Well. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, all of... Uh, the audiobooks I've he- heard Neil Gaiman narrate have been fantastic. He and... does read it beautifully, and I, I was being silly at the start yeah. to put on uh, a silly, croaky, northern man in pub voice uh, to Neil Gaiman. <laughs> Neil Gaiman was here in the, in, the, <laughs> oh, in the booth with us. I'm very sorry to disappoint <laughs> you, but he does read it beautifully, and I felt like, I said this to my partner a few weeks ago, I felt like reading the book was one thing, mm. but then coming back to it and listening to it, it opened up whole different dimensions, and hearing the way the care that neil gaiman put into reading every line Mm. and the authority with which he speaks in the voices of those characters which makes sense because he wrote them and in some cases he lived those experiences is just wonderful and he seems to interject new meaning into the audiobook just from the telling of it i don't know how he does it but it was Mm. almost like if you told me that there were extra sequences written into the audiobook that weren't in the actual book, I would believe you. Even you know what, at I the same time. <laughs> oh, right, okay, all right. There was one bit because I, <laughs> I, I was listening to the audiobook and I thought, oh, I better make a note of that because mm. it's really great. Um, and then when I came to read it, it wasn't there. It's really strange. I don't know if anybody else has, has encountered this. As I say, I've got, I've got two different editions here in front of me. One has got the the cover of the boy floating in the water surrounded by presumably the hunger birds the other is is the lane itself with two kind of spectral figures presumably the the protagonist and letty um and the text in them seems to be identical but there's a wonderful bit and i think we actually touched upon it earlier um it's when letty is saying grown-ups don't look like grown-ups on the inside slightly prior to that um they're talking about monsters and again this is very very doctor who-esque but um uh the narrator says um monster grown-ups and monsters aren't scared of things and on the audiobook i don't know if it was a great line letty says oh monsters are scared that's why they're monsters but in every edition of this book i own the that's why they're monsters line isn't there it's just monsters are scared said letty as for grown-ups and then the passage we read earlier but i thought how interesting was there a later edition or did mm. he just add that line for the audiobook we must know neil gaiman <laughs> fans or indeed neil gaiman write in and tell us because it's a it's a great line i it, i just love that monsters are scared that's why they're monsters but um but yeah um so other than it's a relatively recent book. Well, it's nearly 10 years old, isn't it? So mm. no uh, TV series or film just yet. But there is uh, a stage adaptation oh, is there? that's been on in London. Oh, uh, wow. I think it was about to come out pre-COVID and it was delayed for uh. a bit. Um, but it's been getting absolutely rave reviews. Oh, is it still people... on? Um, well, no, it's just finished mm. in, in that London. Mm. It's been getting rave reviews and are people you know, weeping. And oh, uh, wow. But I, I'm kind of curious because... It's so abstract and so bizarre. Yeah. There are certain things like the flapping kite monster of Ursula Monkton. How can you portray that? You know, and and so much it's it's first person, and so much of it is in the boy's head. How do you put that on on stage? So I don't know how how different it will be, but um, 
Yes, anyway, it's now touring the rest of the wow. UK. So even though it's only June, um, and it's not your birthday, but uh, <laughs> here's an early early Christmas present, because oh, in, in wow. December, oh. we're going to see the Ocean of the End oh, of the Lane oh. at the Lowry. Oh, wow, I'm yeah. so excited. Yeah, so <laughs> I can't wait. Um, oh, um, yeah, so maybe maybe check back in December. We might do a, a little yes. cheeky bonus episode and give you our thoughts yeah. on, the, oh, on, the, on the stage show. Oh, wow, thank you. Can't wait. <laughs> oh, me too. I was going to say, I really hope it comes to the Lowry, because the yep. Lowry is such a great venue to see something like that. And as well, there, there is something quite sort of surreal about the Lowry as a building, I think. Its dimensions all feel a little it's bit wrong. Dimensions transcendental. Bit dimensionally yeah. <laughs> transcendental, like the ocean. Yes. So maybe the whole theatre will be the ocean. Oh, imagine <laughs> that. That's, that's fantastic. And one thing I can't believe I haven't touched upon, actually, is next month's book. Because mm. because I've reread everything that we were going to cover uh, in this series, uh, I almost read them in order, and so consequently, I read The Ocean at the End of the Lane and listened to an audiobook of, of the next book we're going to cover in quite close proximity, and I was kind of astounded by how similar they were in some respects. I mean, they're completely different uh, in, in most respects, but a lot of the themes and the idea of childhood memory versus the reality of adulthood and sort of fantasy and magic and science uh, and also the idea of the triple goddess mm. and it, it, if you'd have asked me i never would have compared them uh but so i don't know what your thoughts will be but do you want to tell them what book we're going to be discussing next month because it's your birthday next month you <laughs> don't expect a present i just gave you a christmas present <laughs> Yeah, this was, uh, I think we, we kind of co-decided it, but this was what I was really mm. arguing we had to do, because <laughs> this is one of my favourite books. You didn't have to argue very uh, hard. Well, but... No, I didn't, no, no. <coughs> but next month, we will be doing The Wonderful Boneland by Alan Garner. You so. might not have heard of it. It's probably mm. one of the more obscure books that we're doing, or maybe not, but um, uh, it's, it's actually a sequel to Alan Garner's 1960s children's novel, The Weird Stone of Brisingerman. And technically it's the third book in the series. But I want to keep it keep it relevant. I remember reading an interview with Neil Gaiman about, uh, not specifically about Boneland, but he was talking about Alan Garner and he had the perfect, perfect way of describing it. Uh, Neil Gaiman said that Boneland is the fourth book in the Weird Stone <laughs> series. But there is no third book. Yes, I love that. Um, and it's it's fantastic. Go away and read it or listen to the audiobook and we'll see you in August. We'll see you then. <laughs>